thank you, Karen, for joining us. And, and usually how I like to start these conversations is, is really about an individual's journey. And I'm grateful enough when I get to talk to, to people, they're kind of uh, doing something pretty amazing. You know, they've sort of impacting lives on a daily basis and, you know, and, and doing what they can to, to, to spark inspiration in the world. And maybe we could start after you graduated from West Point or, or you could start before that. But, but talk a little bit about the journey uh, before Pioneer came into your preview. I am so glad to be here, Grant. You just, uh, <laughs> it's just such an honor. So uh, again, thanks for having me on your show today. So my journey was an interesting one. I grew up in late 70s, early, you know, late 70s and 80s, my formative years. I was in middle school in the 70s. And so it was a short time after the Civil Rights Act in mm -hmm. some ways. Yeah. And so I grew up seeing discrimination disparate treatment, both on a racial and also a gender basis. And mm -hmm. I always thought that things weren't fair. And I wanted life to be more fair from a simplistic point of view. So my life just kind of turned out that I just continued to work towards that value. My time at West Point was a really impactful time for me in my life. All cadets at Military Academy have an honor code. Even today, that honor code is, is it's, it's still really, really lived at our nation's Military Academy. And when I see instances of life not being fair to people or when life is not fair to me, I just get the desire to do something about it. So when I was in the military after West Point, women were still severely restricted with what they could do and what they couldn't do. And that was bothersome. There were very few branches that we could enter. That was a branches is a field where you work. And we were limited to what was called combat support and combat service support at that time, not like today. And the army was still struggling with discrimination against African Americans, against black people. And, and so after after my service, I said to myself, I'm going to get out of the army and I'm going to be a civil rights lawyer. <laughs> and I know that's kind of funny today looking back, but that's what I wanted to do at the time. And then I went to law school and I also studied business just in case it didn't work sure, out. But I absolutely. did practice law for, yeah, I practiced law for a few years and I realized that being a civil rights lawyer is not as sexy as you would think it is. I mean, it's just a lot of it's a grind. Huh? Yeah, it's a, it's a grind. It's a lot of um, small cases, and it just wasn't completely satisfying to me. So so then I went into business and went through management. And um, as I progressed in my career, I learned how to run organizations. I learned how to oversee companies, and I've been able to take that skill and propel it to the work I do today. After I left the practice of law directly, I moved into management. And I had a very traditional middle management career with our uh, private utility here in Washington called Puget Sound Energy. And from there, I went to run a state agency in the Gregoire administration. That was the name of our governor at the mm -hmm. time and was a member of her cabinet. And from that job, I went to to pioneer, you know that the job when I was in when I was on the cabinet was an interesting one. I was the commissioner of the labor department here in our state, which is called the Employment Security Department. And in that department, you have you oversee the labor economists for mm. the state. They're they're the guys that publish the unemployment rate. Yeah. And so every month, the economists would send up the data of the workforce mm -hmm. and. 
that's when I really saw the disparate impacts of people that were are disenfranchised. It is tremendous. And I just think most of us just don't have that data in front of our face every month. But mm-hmm. the wage gap is just right there. And it's it's most extreme for people of color, African-Americans, people that have a felony conviction or coming out of an institution or migrant farm workers. Just those groups of people were just, their their wages are shockingly low. Their ability to accumulate wealth is shockingly low. They're evicted from their homes at much higher rates from others. Their health outcomes are much more poor. and, and, um, And after seeing that data month after month, I said to myself, I just want to do more more. I really worked hard when I was, you know, at our state to be, to bring solutions to, to our state within the lanes of the mission of the agency. And from there, I came to Pioneer Human Services, where I've tried to continue that same work. Now, Pioneer is a social enterprise which combines business practices and nonprofit, nonprofit mission-oriented work all together. So we have manufacturing company, construction company, where um, the people that we serve can have careers and well-paying work. And then the profitability from that part of our organization, it supports some of the mission work from the services side of our organization with the entire company really focused on reducing mass incarceration and its impacts on all people with an, you know, with an understanding that, uh, that there is inequity and that um, we want to be part of that solution. And we want everyone who um, has been involved with the criminal justice system to live a healthy and productive life, regardless of what has happened in their past. Yeah, I mean, it's it, there's so many uh, different dynamics uh, that you spoke about. I, I want to talk about the data real quick. Like you said, I mean, people just don't see it every month, right? It, it, it's hard to, to, to relate or comprehend issues that you're not sort of close to or see every single month. What were some of the, the data points that, that you do see? Does it give you just a, a age, a race? Like what, what data points do you see and, and what really popped out at you? Was it was it also education? I, I guess I, I want to hit so many things here and I'm trying to look at the, like, what did the data tell you when, when you first started to see it? Maybe like your first six months after looking at it, what really was very pronounced to you? The unemployment rate that was disaggregated by race was significantly higher than for white people, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. Mm-hmm. And, and then the other thing that jumped out at me was the wages that migrant workers worked at. Those things just, I mean, migrant workers in our state, you know, our state, the state of Washington, um, most the tree fruit that you eat comes from our state. And so somebody's got to pick that stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Pickers, the farm workers are overwhelmingly Mexican or Mexican-American, first-generation Mexican, and they're still paid by how much they pick. So, I mean, those folks work all year for $20,000 a year Mm -hmm. and not great working conditions. So it was those two groups that I would just look at the data and it it would, it just makes you want to cry. What what could the state do? You know, like what are some of the systems you try to put in place that help that get, help those data points obviously get better over time? 
you know, the state mm-hmm. is obviously handcuffed in a lot of different ways. It, it could do a lot, but it's also, it's hard to be sort of innovative, but it does, mm-hmm. it can allocate capital, right? It can sort of look at systems and maybe create programs that could help over mm-hmm. time, right? You know, what are some of the things that maybe did work or have worked or can work uh, that, that you've seen? Well, I would say at the state level, you know, you look at data in much larger buckets. And mm-hmm. so this is going back about 10 years. And then right when we got some energy, a re- the recession hit. Mm-hmm. So we had to cut mm-hmm. a lot of programs, but we tried to really expand temporary need you know, temporary aid for needy families. We tried to, you know, we wanted to expand educational access for lower income families. Also looking at um, job training programs and apprenticeship opportunities for um, low income individuals and, and individuals of color to the extent possible in our state. So those were three main tools that we would use, you know, education, apprenticeship, Mm-hmm. TANF, right? Creating skill and sets. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. And and job development is always important. People from poor communities will look for work, but they won't have networks to help them. Mm-hmm. So they always have to take the hardest route to get a job. And then there might be something about them that an employer can discriminate, you know, their name or how they look or their race or their gender, their ethnicity, or um, the fact that they have a felony conviction. So all these barriers we call barriers to employment, we typically from the state, we would work on the individual to try to put them in the best position. I don't think that we were very effective at working on employers, making employers want and yeah. feel obligated to change their hiring practice. And so in the 10 years since then, we've tried to work both those angles, right? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. definitely want to work with the individual to put them in the best position possible to live their life, whether it's attaching them to benefits that they deserve or if it's helping them in the labor market. But at the same time, you know, employers and landlords have to do their part, which is to give people opportunity and, and to not give in to implicit bias and open their hearts and minds to hiring individuals that they may have shunned before. So I think that that has a big part to play. And only recently have we been willing to have those discussions head on as a society, but I see improvement there. And this is what I sort of love about Pioneer and kind of doing some reading and research of it is that it really incorporates business and, and mm-hmm. skill training into development, right? It, I mean, the, the only way I think these these data points sort of changes a mass sort of like skill deployment of, of, of humans, right? And, mm-hmm. and while technology can still obviously take away jobs and things like that, it, it'll still create different jobs. And so mm-hmm. obviously training is huge, right? And, and whether mm-hmm. it's a person coming from out of, out of rehab or, or out of the prison system, it, it has to be somewhere to go. Yes. It, it, and I think that if, if there's skill development and training and, and an opportunity to get better, right? It, if you don't even have an opportunity to get better, how can you get better? Right? So it's, mm-hmm. I, I love the idea of, of incorporating business and skill training because it's such a sustainable approach to an issue. Um, so talk a little bit about Pioneer and sort of its approach, because it's a very big organization. <laughs> it's a lot of programs. So kind of start where you want to start, but I want to get into sort of the, the nitty gritty of, of all the work that the organization is doing. Well, I think what we can do is just start with people and okay. their journey. When you think about crime, first of all, our relationship with crime as a society is interesting. I think it's shaped by 
TV. Mm-hmm. We watch Law and Order. I tell people today, don't watch Law and Order. <laughs> Just don't even watch it. Don't watch any cop shows because we watch those TV shows over and over and over. And it cements in our mind this idea about criminal behavior and and the bad guy in their story is always really bad and that's you know a very judgmental approach to looking at people people don't start out that way right i mean maybe rarely a person is born and you know some you know they just are born with no morals but i would put that in the less than the three percent Mm-hmm. of all the people that commit crime, right? So people are born and, you know, many things can happen in that birth to five, birth to 10, mm-hmm. birth to 14 journey that impacts them the rest of their life. And you, we can look at someone and not know their story at all. And, and their stories are different to how they get to why they're making poor decisions. So some people are unlucky and they're charged and they were innocent the whole time, but I'll just set that to the side for a second and talk about people that do make poor decisions. Maybe they were exposed to trauma before five. Maybe Mm -hmm. their mother or father were incarcerated. Maybe mother uh, wasn't around. Maybe there was abuse going on in the household. Maybe they saw something very traumatic. Maybe they saw someone murdered. Maybe something happened. Maybe there was sexual abuse going on in their household. Or maybe they uh, had just a really low attention span and just jumped around in the house all the time they were a kid. And and so their teachers always put sent them to the principal's office. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For, for whatever reason, people start to find this, you know, they're kind of outcast and, and you see it starting as the second and then fourth grade and then fifth grade and then sixth grade, you start to see expulsions. And then by eighth grade, looking for love and attention in Greg, in gangs and running the streets or, you know, not wanting to live at home. And you see parents trying to corral their children and being unable to, you know, sending kids to live with relatives. But one of the things that's common across all that is witnessing trauma. You know, I was a middle-class child growing up. You know, my, my, my parents were solidly middle-class professionals. My dad was in the army and my mom was a teacher. So, you know, other than maybe having the death of a dog or a pet, I don't know that I witnessed trauma. That is not the background of the people that they portray as being very bad on law and order. And so, and that trauma isn't dealt with well, and all of a sudden their coping skills, drugs become involved. Drugs are present in something like 80, mm-hmm. between 60 and 80% of arrests, drugs are involved. Yeah. Whether the person perpetrating, per- perpetrating the crime is on drugs, but they're involved. And George Floyd's life story is mean, is very similar to many of the people that we serve Mm -hmm. here at Pioneer, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, um, they get caught up into drugs. There's this, there's a lifestyle associated with it that you and I would not relate to. And then there's the course of addiction, or you have poor decisions. You know, if your crimes don't involve drugs, then it might be cheating, lying or cheating. So it's one of those, it's drugs or lying or cheating or stealing. But those are all things that people can change from when right. given the, the right, what we call treatment and the right environment. Because at the end of the day, we all want to be loved in society. We want our children to be proud of us. We want our friends to be proud of us. We're social. Yeah. And so, so Pioneer intervenes 
at all of those stages, depending on the person's life history, their, their basic needs and their criminogenic risk patterns. Why do they make the decisions that they do? And let's get at that. And because addiction is so prevalent, so prevalent in, in people that uh, are often sent to jail and prison, we have a lot of treatment for that. We have residential mm-hmm. um, substance use disorder treatment. We have opioid use disorder treatment. We have co-occurring drug treatment because a lot of people in jail are struggling with addiction. For people that are living a lifestyle that's based on lack of economic opportunity, then that's what we address with with them. So then it's more of getting stability with housing and then thinking that, yes, you are worthy. You can have a legal job. You can be in the labor market. And this is what it takes. And this is, and this is the, this is how you can get there. So we have, we have training and intervention for, for that. And then for for women in particular, you know, many of them have relationship issues where they get caught up with a man to give them love, a man, a woman to give them love that that's living a lifestyle, living a life of crime. And so we work with them. So it really, you know, there's a whole, uh, there's a theory that is the best evidence, the best science today, and it's called risk need responsivity. And that's what we use here at Pioneer. And so we assess for everybody's, you know, why they act the way they do with respect to criminal behavior. And then we develop a plan specific to them. And then we couple that with healthcare needs and then basic needs. So basic needs such as housing and food, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that has to be addressed. Then you layer that with health mm-hmm. and then you layer that with criminogenic risks. And you combine all those together and you can really help people. And that's why our results are so good because we have all of those. When does this sort of skills training or sort of job placement enter into the ecosystem? That comes in late. So that will come in after you've got stability, after you've the person's in recovery. Mm-hmm. If substance use disorder was a part of their background, after they've gotten into relationship, you know, they've started to recover their relationship, that the job training comes last, because you have to have your life at a certain point before you can be a quality employee for somebody else. Yeah, yeah. And, and so where I see a lot of programs go wrong, where they start job training right away, and the person may not even have a place to live. Right. No, it's a great point. So uh, yeah, so so your client, you know, we have to start with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Let's get shelter and stability first. I want to talk a little bit about the criminal justice system and sort of the the one thing that I always looked at as, you know, an issue is treatment of a so-called, you know, criminal, right? And I think the majority of individuals incarcerated are nonviolent. So to me, that, that could be anybody. Right. And I think we look at people that are incarcerated much different than we look at our neighbors or something like that. And nonviolent individuals may, may have, you know, a drug issue or, you know, maybe it, maybe they're not even a user of drugs. Maybe they're just a distributor. Right. And they they sold they're, they're selling it for for one reason or another. Right. But they're not have a violent past or a criminal record of violence at all. And that's always been what's been disappointing to me is that we treat a nonviolent person the same as 
a violent criminal, which I think is two separate things. And, and that's an opinion, right? That that could be that could be uh, a difference of opinion for 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 a lot of people. But I, I do think there's a, there's a difference between a person who turns to violence and then turns to turns to drugs. Or, or I guess I say that to like the treatment of individuals not going to prison, right? Like, what is there another alternative we can do for mm-hmm. you know nonviolent offenders? I think we have to figure that out first and then we can get to you know, I don't know that I agree with you okay on whether our treatment should turn on the violence of their crime. I don't know that I agree with that. I, I guess it, I, I should have said that I don't believe that a person should get arrested for drugs and go to prison. I think if you okay. That's different. Yeah. I phrase it very, very badly. Right. I, but yeah. I, I look at murder as much different than, you know, heroin possession. It, to me, that there's there's two different issues there. Uh, yeah. A person with addiction issues versus a person who sort of is a bit violent and detrimental to society rather than just themselves as an yeah. addict. I Well, I'll throw one more twist to say okay. if I am a person that embezzled retirement funds, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like say I'm Bernie Madoff or someone like that, Sure. from, you know, people's whole life savings. You, you could argue that that's nonviolent, true. But they, um, but they affected other people, right? That exactly. They, they damaged other people. Yes. So, so yes, I would put that in the same category, right? Yeah. A person that is addicted to drugs is, is really destroying themselves and, and they can affect society, obviously, if they if they drive while while high or drunk and hit, right? I mean, there's there's obviously stages of that. But if a person is addicted to heroin or opioids, I feel like that can sort of get solved through, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. an ecosystem of whether it's treatment, skills training, opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Addicts make, I mean, let's be clear, at someone who is suffering from substance use disorder is not making good decisions. Totally. Right. They are not making yeah. good decisions. They, um, I got my car broken into a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and it was right after my dad died. And I was in San Francisco and I was actually visiting a company a little, a lot like Pioneer that, that works with, uh, folks that are disenfranchised. And so I um, rented a car and I, and I had some books in the back. And one of those books, it was, uh, Dale Carnegie. My dad liked Dale mm-hmm, Carnegie, mm-hmm. how to win friends and influence yeah. people. And he had written all through the front page. He just wrote me this note about, you know, you know, he wrote it to me and I was in middle school. And so my dad had, you know, passed away. It was, you know, five years ago, month after his death and somebody broke in my car and stole that book mm. out of all the things they could have taken. They took the book that was like my heart right and I well and I just remember being so upset you know in tears checking all the dumpsters and finally um you know I missed my flight I just it was just awful and um and you know and I thought about that because I thought you know what person would break into a car and steal a Dale Carnegie book mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it was a high, and it was an area where, you know, you, you could just tell what drugs are in the area sure. and, you know, but then, but what kind of sentence would I want for that person? What I want a three strikes you're out. So, you know, where those in Washington, we had that right. Three, three crimes, you get life. And yeah, I don't like, that. you know, <laughs> that's a problem. And, and I was hurt so badly and I wanted the person to be found. But, you know, after three weeks, you know, I calmed down. It took me a couple of weeks, but, you know, I really didn't want a life sentence for that person, you know, as a victim, 
you know, I wanted my deductible paid, (laughs) but um, I I wanted that person to just get better and not do that anymore. And, and I talk about that because when politicians run for office, they, and they run on a public safety platform, they talk and they try to make us believe that long sentences and warehousing people is good for our society. And it isn't because people have children, people have wives, you know, when we put folks away, then all of a sudden you're condemning their next, that next generation. And so, um, and, even, I talk, and it costs a lot. Yeah, it costs, certainly, it, it's expensive yes. to just lock people up and throw it. Yeah. It's very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. 60 to 70% of all County budgets are, are related to public safety and law enforcement. The better Why investment would be in yes. like invest in education. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, what I would, you know, what I would want, and we're trying to work with our, our, um, our local partners to offer this in Washington, where I live is something where we have treatment on demand. I mean, when people are, you know, severely severe, when they're suffering from substance use disorder, um, you could argue that they're really not in the right mind. They are, the drugs are think, you know, if you study addiction studies, the pleasure center of your brain becomes like oversized. And, um, and it is screaming for, for that drug and it, and people do things they wouldn't normally do. So we do need to somehow protect people when they're in the throes of, of that drug. So is that jail? Absolutely not, but it is something. And so, and so whether it's, pressure for treatment and stabilization on demand treatment. Um, Certainly we we need to get people that are suffering from substance use disorder um, into treatment right away and to see if we can break that. We want to intervene in that cycle of addiction, in that course of addiction, the best that we can, because drugs today are powerful. Mm -hmm. They're more powerful than they were Mm -hmm. in the forties and fifties. And we have to acknowledge that. And then I think we have to also be much more forgiving when we look back at someone's record and we see a felony conviction. And we can either do more to um, close records down so that we mm-hmm. don't have the same access, or we have to discipline ourselves to um, be more open when we're renting, making renting decisions or hiring decisions. But I think we have to do all of those things because we have a lot of challenges in our society and, and people are self-medicating those challenges. And, um, and then we're blaming them when they self-medicate and they make poor decisions. And they, I'm not have, here and, they, and they don't have a really good mm-hmm. lawyer to get them out there sentencing or, you know, I mean, there's so much goes into after the arrest as well. Right. And if you're, if you're, if you're poor, you sort of don't really have a chance of a, getting your sentence sort of down to a misdemeanor or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. It, yeah. It's, it's all plea deals. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you're, if you have money for a good lawyer, then the same charge, you're going to get mm-hmm. a very, very different yeah. uh, sentence or punishment. That's a whole other issue. (laughs) It sure is. I mean, and you know, and black people can just be around someone else. Mm. They they don't even have to actually commit the actual crime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just for a black person, if you're just around another black person who's got a criminal lifestyle, you'll be arrested and charged too. I want to talk a little bit about the process and like when a person comes in, what's that life cycle? Are we talking like nine months to a year where they go through sort of treatment and then they're at a point to where, okay, they can start sort of 
the educational process or the skills training process, learn a track, learn a craft, learn a trade or something like that. Like how long is that life cycle for a person that, that comes through pioneer? Everybody's different, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Some people already have a trade. They already have a place to live and they have supported fa supportive families. So for folks like that, then you're just dealing with the addiction. Gotcha. So um, that's it. Or some people have, they don't have an addiction, but they have a felony conviction and, and they don't have a supportive family. So all they need is a place to live. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then some people, you know, have all of those barriers, every single barrier, no supportive family, struggling with addiction, their housing situation is insecure. They don't have any legal way to have money coming in the door. They're not mm -hmm. attached to their benefits. They don't have a driver's license mm -hmm. and they they have a lot of legal and financial obligations. It's a daunting task. Yes. So that when I talk about it's individual, it's very, very individual. So what we try to do at Pioneer is, is have the right set of services just for you. And then the amount of services depends on the community. So Pioneer doesn't have to offer all the services. We just have to make sure that, that we offer that there are services that are available to you. So for example, if you have a, a felony conviction and you don't have a place to live, but you want to be, you know, you want to be a software developer, mm -hmm. there's another um, nonprofit in Seattle that will teach that. Nice. So they don't have to come to Pioneer for everything. If they, if they want to become a cook, there's another nonprofit in Seattle that specializes in helping people get into the restaurant industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So part of it is for us to just make sure that we are navigating. That's another word for connecting people to the services that they need so that they can be successful. How many, how many individuals usually come through annually through Pioneer? Yep. Or even if you want to go broader over the last you know decade, you, you sort of been there. Yeah. Well, we serve about 10,000 people a year. Wow. In in a di in different capacities. So we have jail diversion. And so our whole job is to keep people out of jail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it kind of depends on where they are on the disease path of, di of addiction. So people that are still actively using, we want them to have a safe place that they can come and sleep where we can try to talk to them to say, are you ready to start your recovery today? So that part of the company probably is maybe 1500 a year. It's just a matter of just not having people go to jail, exposing them to treatment. Then we have another 2000 that we serve with case management in one of our locations, right? And we'll navigate with that person to services. Then we have another group, I would put this in about 2000 that we are just offering residential treatment services to them for substance use disorder or for co-occurring. Then we have another group of folks that we that we work on an outpatient basis that were that had a crime that if they go through two years of treatment, then that crime will be wiped off their record. So they're in, called in what's um, felony drug court diversion. And we have another group of people that we um, we provide in jail services to. And then we have we have about, I would say, 900 apartments that people can live in throughout our service territory. And then we have another whole group of people that work at Pioneer Industries and, you know, building airplane, you know, airplane parts. <laughs> yeah, I kind of uh, wanted to, it's a perfect yeah. because I kind of wanted to get into uh -huh. that side of, yeah. of the Yeah, and then we have job training. Then we yeah, have job training. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's that incredible. full range, right? Yeah. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that side of the, of the organization. People actually 
whether it's building blades, right, or, or, or other sort of skilled uh, labor jobs, talk about talk about that sort of ecosystem. Is that people that come out of uh, the pioneer sort of journey and, and sort of you can see who's, I guess, qualified or equipped to sort of mm-hmm. take this responsibility on to kind of start start sort of in the workforce. So Pioneer has a company that is an aerospace manufacturing company, and um, and it is skilled machining is the basis of what we do. And so those are competitive positions. Mm-hmm. About imagine. yeah, so we average about sixty percent of the workforce in Pioneer Industries um, has a felony conviction or is in recovery. Wow. But those are all those jobs are competitive. So typically what we do is um, we have our job training programs and our job training programs, the graduates can work anywhere. They don't have to work at Pioneer Industries. Mm-hmm. We have job developers that go out into the community and we create relationships with employers in town. And, and so our job training program is kind of agnostic to which career you want to have. And then if the person wants to get into aerospace manufacturing, then they have to go to 13 more weeks of school Hmm. to learn the basics of being in aerospace manufacturing. Then they can apply to an open position in Pioneer. And and then... Uh, Is that education um, free for them? Um, how would they pay for Do they have to pay something small or, or in the back end or something? It is free for the most part. Um, and then we also have stipends. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a partner here that runs a state program and we can normally get folks into their program. That's great. So like yeah. I said, you know, you have to have relationships with partners so you don't have to do it all. It's, listen, access, I mean, access to, to that alone yeah. is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. The opportunity yeah. that that mm-hmm. is just, it's, it's a life changer. You know? Yeah, and so and so here it's called AJAC, the Aerospace Joint Apprenticeship Commission that operates the training program. So anyway, the graduates come and then they can apply and we eat and we'll have, you know, tech one, tech two positions come open frequently. We have a, a distribution warehouse in the next county down by Tacoma that they can come in that way and you don't have to be skilled at all to work in the warehouse. That's an entry level job down there. And um, we have computer programmers and you have, but you have the opportunity, you have, we have front office positions um, for a full lifelong career at Pioneer. One thing that we make that you've probably seen, uh, we make about a million to two million parts a year in aerospace. Right now, travel is down because we have COVID, sure. but generally we make several million parts a year. But we make the, uh, in the 737 series of aircraft, mm-hmm. we make the escape hatch assemblies. That's that exit road door that oh, you yeah. sit next to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We make those here at Pioneer. But we also make a lot of other parts that you can't see as easily. Um, we, we have a lot. We, we just do a lot of aluminum machining, we call it. And, um, and, our, and the machinery we have is state of the art. We have three, four, and five. You know, we have three and four axis mills that are operated by uh, computer programming. And we have, you know, staff that have um, been to school. They go back to school and then they'll get an associate's degree or a technical bachelor's degree. And they'll, you know, just do great Amazing. things for our, for our company. Amazing. I want to kind of mm-hmm. talk, I want to throw some numbers out there, but then I want you to kind of add some more to it or, or some context to it. And okay, 79% secure employment. Is that when they- yeah step into the pioneer door organization or is that after their complete a program or something like that because that's a very high mm-hmm. number of people oh yeah oh yeah that's after our job training programs mm-hmm. wow wow mm-hmm. 
And then 96% have no new arrests. That's like, correct. To mm-hmm. me, that is like the number that <laughs> that's, that's all you have to put out there. Like that is unbelievable. And I think the, the one thing that I like to say, how I think of things is having purpose is like a very po- important thing in a person's life. And usually when you don't have purpose, you go down some bad paths. And I think having the ability to even have a job, right? It, whatever job it may be at its simpler, simplest form, like have an empl- having employment, you know, gives people purpose. And I think that mm-hmm. it's such it's such a simple thing, right, to say, I guess, but like, it's such a powerful motivator, I think, for people to have purpose. And I think at its base level, I think a job gives individuals a sense of purpose, you know, at a foundational level. So I think that's why that number is so important. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that a good job does certainly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was just yesterday. So I went into the office yesterday. I tried to go in once a week and uh, one of our vendors had sent us a box of popcorn or something. So I took it down. My office is over our second plant. We have uh, Mm -hmm. three manufacturing plants. And so I'm in plant two. And so I walked downstairs and um, it was lunchtime and and I was talking to one of our employees and she was telling me, she said, you know, I almost have my, she almost had her AA and she wanted to be a chemical dependency counselor. And she was working... I think she's a machinist right now, but so many people that have struggled with prison when Mm -hmm. they're younger, Mm -hmm. when they're older, they want to give back. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and she was just telling me that all she wanted to do was be a substance use disorder professional. And she was so excited. She almost had her AA and then she wanted to go back and get her bachelor's. (laughs) Amazing. So, and, um, and then she said she wanted to change jobs. She wanted to get out of the plant and she wanted to actually work in one of our, um, she wanted to work in one of our uh, treatment facilities, but the desire to give back is strong in so many of our employees and all they want to do is help people. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, um, it's, uh, I think that you're right about that. So it's not just the job, but it's, it's, uh, it's like, it's what, it's what do you want to do with your life? Yeah. And people absolutely. with lived and people with lived experience are much more believable for our clients than someone like me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always, I love to talk to clients, but you know what? They're going to listen to someone who's walked their path. Yeah. And, but I, I also think like, and jobs is such an interesting thing because you cannot even know what's available in the world, right? You, you sometimes think a job is a job or a career is a career, right? But like, you don't even know, like growing up, I mean, now it's different because we have technology, right? You can kind of search any type of job and kind of be anything, right? But like growing up without the internet and growing up in, in sort of, you know, neighborhoods or, or, or environments, like you don't even know like a mach- like a software engineer is even a job you don't even know what a real estate agent is a job like growing up I didn't really know a lot of different jobs I grew up around you know my dad was a laborer and my mom worked in retail right Mm -hmm. we had like an oil refinery like that was the big job right or like an elevator union right but Mm -hmm. like you don't know like a graphic designer is a thing you know you don't Mm -hmm. know an architect is a thing so I think sometimes when people are down and, and and out and struggling with with addiction or, or whatever it is, I think that they don't know what's out there a lot of the times, right? It's hard for them to get inspired by things because the things around them are not very inspiring. So I, I just think having having a job uh, allows you to see what else is sort of out there, right? Even if it's at your own job, maybe you have 
you're the low person on the totem pole at, at some place, but you see different jobs, right, within that facility, within that company or whatever. And you're like, oh, maybe I want to do that. I want to do that. Or, you know, you work in a client base like, oh, I kind of want to go do what they're doing, right? It's same thing mm-hmm. with, with what she said. She kind of wants to transition now to a different career path. But I, I just think it's it's just so important to have it, to have that inspiration, mm-hmm. you know, to understand what you what you can even do with your life. What the, what the possibilities are and that's just a, it's just struggle for a lot of people I think even now still mm-hmm. I think you're right and the young lady I was talking to yesterday you know she had dropped out of school in the eighth grade yeah and that's right. common that is yeah, it's common totally. for yeah. the people that we work with and 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 so for her she I think she just needed to see someone that had that path, be able to have whatever job they wanted. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've observed that as well. People will be aware of all these jobs, but they'll feel like someone like them, that job isn't available to them, you know? And I, and, and I would say from a societal perspective, we often do that when we say a lawyer can't be someone who's gone to prison or a doctor can't mm-hmm. be someone mm-hmm. who's gone to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned a real estate agent, you know, a person with a felony conviction can't be a real estate agent. So there are so many careers that are, are locked away from people because of a mistake they might've made when they were 18 or 19. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that they really, you know, I think that folks believe that that job isn't there for them, which is sad. And in our state, we have a rep, we have a representative, her name is uh, Tara Simmons, who was our first legislator who had been incarcerated. Hmm. And she was just elected this year. That's great. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. What was her what was her background? What did she what did she get incarcerated for? Uh, drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You can overcome it. It's, yep. it's one of the things you can there's just so many pathways. Um, yes. I'd love to end on maybe some optimism a little bit about maybe what mm-hmm. you've seen over your decade of, of being in the organization, leading the organization. You know, what are you sort of optimistic about, about maybe for, for the next decade and, and maybe societal changes that you do see that are optimistic, your overall outlook for, for sort of, you know, the future of, of what good could sort of happen? I'm very optimistic about, you know, federally, this administration, they at least acknowledge that, uh, you know, corrections week right Mm -hmm. out of the gate. Um, (laughs) So that's a good thing. On our state, there's a, in the state of Washington, where I live, there's a lot that's going on. We had a big Supreme Court decision two months ago called the Blake decision, where it decriminalized simple possession of controlled substances. So that's exciting. Um, We're chipping away at the uh, three strikes law that I talked about for for folks that have repeated uh, felony convictions. Is that three strikes, three drug charges as well? That it could just be nothing violent. It could just be drug Yeah, it didn't have to, did not have to be violent. You're Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. So um, we're starting to chip away at that. We've, you know, we're we're looking at our sentencing. We have a big sentencing task force at the state level right now. Our counties are trying to be really creative with what we call jail diversion. I could talk about that a whole nother hour. But but that's where, you know, you you, you, uh, send people to treatment rather than jail. So I have a, I have a lot to be positive about in our state. We had a big victory here a week or so ago when our governor signed an expansion of our voting rights to people that are under uh, supervision Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of the court system. So 
I feel really positive about where we're going as a society. And I'm just hoping that there's not going to be a backlash and that we continue to, you know, be more loving towards each other. Well, I think producing the outcomes that, you know, you're producing is, is a great, is a great way to show and change things, right? Because it's always, I think, easy to say, hey, we need to do things differently, right? Or or change this or change Mm -hmm. that. But Mm-hmm. okay, well, what's the alternative, right? Yeah. And I think the blueprint is sort of there, which you have sort of led. And I'm sure there's, there's other, you know, organizations across the country that are, that maybe you admire or are doing some similar things. Um, so I mm-hmm. think if there's an alternative, right? You said like, what is, okay, we don't want to send individuals to prison, but what is the alternative? What can we do, right? That is better. Mm-hmm. We need that sort of roadmap. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it seems like it's sort of getting there where it's like, it seems pointless to send an addict to jail where they have to become violent, right? Or they mm-hmm. have even more trauma happen to them there. Um, exactly. And it's expensive for the taxpayer. <laughs> it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like there has to be a better alternative for the for, for this. And so I'm happy to see that there's a, there's organizations out there doing it, right? And just like you said that, you know, being a, a criminal justice lawyer or civil rights lawyer was a grind. You know, so is this in a lot of ways, right? I mean, repairing this person's life is a grind, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you have to be consistent every day, you know, mm-hmm. you as the leaders in the organization, but also mm-hmm. individuals walking in, right? Every mm-hmm. day, it's a, it's a brick to, to build the house. Yeah. So, you know, they're on a daily grind as well. So mm-hmm. thank you so and much for the work you do. I just want to say, you know, having a loving society is so important because people's paths to recovery aren't linear, oh, yeah. right? Totally. They'll make two good decisions and then a not so good decision and then three good decisions and then a not so good decision. But after a while, they'll get there. And we're just so, you know, unforgiving. And I just think that so if each of us can be more loving, um, it will help. If you want to learn more about Pioneer or um, social justice, please, please, please come to our website and and take our mass incarceration quiz so that you can learn more about it. Pioneerhumanservices.org forward slash quiz and and just peruse our website we've got a lot of articles we have client stories you'll you know you'll see ad the advocacy issues that we're working on to make the world a better place we'd love for the listeners to this podcast to become a supporter amazing well thank you so much karen uh, uh, thank you